awaken from this illusion. And you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death. You can feel yourself, not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. the parallel systems tonight we've got an extremely special guest i'm honored to be speaking with ian from white lotus of light uh ian you've got a fantastic youtube channel and you recently had a stellar interview with sam tripoli over on tinfoil hat it knocked it out of the park it was so good Uh, and i immediately reached out to you i was like i really want to speak to ian because you're speaking about many of the same things that we're speaking about on my channel but you're coming at it from a completely different approach and I think that'll be really valuable to listeners to hear. There's a lot of people who are worried right now. Uh, we talk a lot about the financial side on my channel, but I think you bring in some new elements to spiritual side too. And we have some kind of synchronicity when we talk about the history of banking. We both kind of go down the same track. So I thought tonight, Ian, maybe we could start by looking into that history and you could give us your findings on where the history of debt comes from, where the history of debt-based systems of money maybe talk a little bit about how it developed over the years because you gave a really good take on it on Sam's podcast. Uh, so maybe we could start in Babylon and you could give us just your general overview of that timeline. And then maybe in part two, we can start to talk a little bit more about this esoteric side because I know that you work a lot with astrology. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that listeners will be, some will be familiar with, some won't. Uh, but I think it'd be really valuable to get that take. Yeah, absolutely. Um First of all, I just want to say, we were just talking about this before the show. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about all this kind of heavy stuff that's going on. And I, I am no innocent babe in the woods who's unaware of the epic levels of corruption, unprecedented levels of corruption. Um, we are at, in my estimation, the tail end of what the Hindus call the Kali Yuga. Uh, it ends according to, uh, there's a scholar, and I always forget his name because he's an Indian gentleman, and in fact, I've just taken the habit of, I'm going to real quick look him up because I want to give credit where it is due, and this uh, gentleman is brilliant. And his name is Bibhu Dev Misra, and he wrote The End of the Kali Yuga in 2025, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Yuga Cycle, and he wrote it way back in 2012 uh, on Graham Hancock's site. Uh, Graham Hancock, you know, very famous uh, Magicians of the Gods author, you know, and... Um, I think one of the more, um, I don't know if he'd consider himself a scholar. I guess he calls himself a journalist. Uh, I, I mean, he's more historian than journalist in, in my view, but uh, whatever you want to call Graham Hancock, he's a, he's a very important voice. Um, and I believe whether he realizes it or not, or whether he's in that, uh, has that affiliation, one of the things that we can get into later is this thing I talk about, this clash between um, Luciferians and Malachians, and then with a, a third group, um, people who resonate with the most high rather than Lucifer and Moloch. And there's even a fourth group, which uh, I had, I don't go into almost at all, which is a non-dual group that uh, seems to have existed in the Tibetan plateau since um, forever. I mean, like, I don't know when it started. It's completely lost in the midst of time. It may even predate Atlantis and that sort of thing. I have no idea how long that particular uh, group has operated and they seem to be above and beyond good and evil they're non-dual in nature and so um i i am someone who studies things both from a very material like 
historical and economic point of view, political, geopolitical point of view. Uh, and then also just because of the way that my mind works or my soul's journey, I'm very much into the esoteric aspect uh, of things. And I'm of the opinion that the world is uh, dominated by and in many ways ruled by uh, what my friend Philip Jimenez, who's sort of uh, uh, partners with me a lot on my channel on the Venetian Black Nobility series, what he likes to call the the occult aristocracy, which I think is a great is a great description, and it's a nicer umbrella term in a certain way than um, the Venetian Black Nobility, who I think is sort of like uh, has the upper hand among this uh, occult aristocracy and would represent the Malachian faction, uh, what some people call Satanists. I find Satan to be a worthless sloppy term that's very close to meaningless and is way overused, um, especially by people who are discovering this occult aristocracy. And so what do they do? They go, holy shit, these people are sacrificing people and Epstein style harm of children and clearly worship some evil deity. Uh, this looks like Satan because they have no other way of describing this. And I'm going to re-entrench in my childhood Abrahamic faith, whether that's Judaism or Islam or Christianity in the West. It's usually one of those three. Uh, people will re-entrench in that because they don't know what to do faced with this monstrosity. And they will very often uh, come at things from a very clumsy, very uh, ignorant. And I don't mean that in a mean sense i mean that in a sense of they truly do not have the information and that's the kind of thing that i hope to provide to listeners um but they are terrified by what they discover and they're like well what i know opposes that is christianity or islam or judaism and so i need to um go back to what my grandma was talking about or my cousin or whatever it is and very often they will uh become reactionary uh, Abrahamic faith folks. And the problem with that is that the Vatican uh, set the groundwork for the false uh, non-Christian, but pre pretending to be Christian point of view um, long, long ago. And so things like Satan are horribly misrepresented. So let me ask you a question. What, what in your mind would Satan look like? There's no wrong answer here. Everybody says the same thing, but I'm just I'm queuing it up Socrates style. What does Satan look like? Yeah, for sure. I think it's something akin to a half goat beast. I always think of Satan as a muscular, big-headed thing, horns, um, fangs for teeth. Yeah, typical classical representation for sure. Right. That's not what Moloch looks like. That's not what Lucifer looks like. But it is what the pagan god Kernanos looks like the god of the wild hunt, also called uh, or very similar, basically the same deity, Pan, in the Greek mythos. And you mentioned that the lower half is uh, animal and the upper half is uh, human with then like an additional animal thing of the horns, right? So even, and what that means is the lower half is still in the animal state and the upper half is trying to merge into the human state, but it still kind of has that animal nature to it and so the celts worshipped Kernanos, which was uh did have human sacrifice although it was pretty sparing compared to these malachian folks it was like maybe once a year a specific symbolic person they would sacrifice them among the druids in order to ensure a, a good harvest and i'm not sitting here defending uh Kernanos, but that god is very much about uh primitive people who are uh well people who are kind of in an early stage of civilization where they mix hunter gather with uh, subsistence farming, much like the Celts did in Europe in uh, the Roman times and later. And so Cronanus worship was kind of like the other big game in town from the Vatican's point of view in the early days. And so since Satan is meaningless, it literally just means the adversary because they wanted to wipe out pagans. They represented it in a way of, the pagan conception of this god, Kernanos. And so immediately Satan gets confusing just right there because the biblical Satan is quite clearly and without a shadow of a doubt, Moloch, without question. That was the enemies of the Jews. That was the enemy of King David. And it's what caused the fall of King Solomon, the Canaanites up just to the north of Jerusalem. And so... Why are you talking about all this Satanism and blah, blah, blah? Well, it's because people who are 
uh, in this early stage of discovery and are, you know, just beginning to learn the esoteric stuff, it's very easy to just call anything that isn't whatever their religion is satanic, right? Anything that smacks of some kind of dark force, uh, they're going to call it satanic. Very often I see people say Baphomet is satanic. Nope, utterly false. That's a god of alchemy. Nothing to do with Satanism, but it is used by Satanists because, or Malachians more accurately, because they want to transmute and transform society. So they appeal to a alchemical god in order to transmute society, right? They want to bring it to that zero point, that merger of opposites, and then create their vision, which would be, you know, the Great Reset, right? The WF Davos stuff. They also, the Malachians have for uh, you know, since they got crushed entire by Alexander the Great, they have done a very good job of getting people to think that anything and everything other than them is Satan. The Muslims are satanic. The Jews are satanic, the Vatican will say. The pagans are satanic. Uh, the Native Americans are satanic. Indian Hindus are satanic. The Buddhists are satanic. Yoga is satanic. Meditation is satanic. Chakras is satanic. Just Kind of everything that isn't their little thing is magically satanic. And this is why it's so sloppy, because you start making mistakes like thinking Moloch is the same as Baphomet, is the same as Lucifer, is the same as perhaps Set in the Egyptian pantheon. Although I would say Set is, uh, you know, much more on the nose than using the term Satan. Um, although even Set seems to be a very distinct deity uh, from Moloch. And so... The reason that I try and bring people's attention to Moloch is because it's a very important historical thread that leads directly into banking. So in the Bible, King Solomon marries a wife from Tyre. And Tyre in modern-day Lebanon was a Canaanite city, and they worship Moloch. Their word for Moloch, their descriptive word is Haman Baal. It just means, I forget what the Haman part means, but Baal just means the Lord. And sometimes people will just say Baal, and that just means Lord. But Hamon Baal or Ammon Baal or Baal Hamon is the term that the, the Tyrians and then their uh, colony in Carthage, right, uh, Hannibal and the Punic Wars, um, that god was referred to by the Jews as Moloch. And I like it because Hamon Baal, that doesn't have any punch to it, like energetically, but Moloch sure does. It, it, it just has that dark, heavy, nasty energy to it uh, that accurately describes this being. And so King Solomon, uh, in addition to having Hiram Abiff, who created the uh, Temple of Solomon, he also brought from Tyre a wife. And in fact, in order to get the temple built, it seems he needed to marry this uh, Tyrian uh, princess. Now, she was very beautiful and a sorceress and very powerful, and she brought all sorts of astrologers and magicians and whatnot with her. And Solomon was very interested in magic of all kinds, um, and he really tried to thread the needle between, like, you know, using the ring that was given to him by, I can't remember if it was Raziel, or um, actually I think it's maybe Gabriel gave him a ring that allowed him to control jinn uh, in the Arabic folklore or demons more in the... Uh, Jewish folklore, right, or, or, and folklore is not the right term, but in the account, uh, it varies to whether he enslaved this head of the jinn, according to the Arabs, or uh, that he got demons and jinn and so forth to help him uh, in the building of the temple with that ring. So he was very interested in the cult and esoteric, but he was given that ring with that purpose from, you know, uh, the God of the Jews. And then he, um, he was, uh, he marries this woman, and then they build a temple to Moloch on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and that's what led to Solomon's fall from grace, uh, because they started doing the whole thing they do, which is child sacrifice and ritualized uh, child sexual harm, Epstein style. So uh, this group entire then continues to sort of go along, and this group, you can trace it back to, you mentioned Babylon, uh, back to Babylon, and then eventually to Acadia uh, uh, linguistically, and very possibly back to Samaria, although I haven't been able to uh, kind of pull that thread. Um, there's lots of great work by scholars like Dr. Joseph Farrell on uh, Babylon's banksters and others. 
Um, suffice like banking, proto-banking seems to have begun in Babylon. Uh, I don't focus a ton on Babylon because I'm much more interested in the Tyrians. And the reason for that is, is that it gets a little murky if this group goes back to Babylon and Akkadia, though it seems to. And they certainly copied and pasted the Babylonian money magic, talismanic uh, uh, debt and usury, like in a very, very primitive form. They were doing that to some degree, although Tyre's main industry was this purple dye that they got from the murex snail. And you have to crush something like 10,000 murex snails to get a single gram, hence the term royal purple because only royalty could afford it. And people take for granted all the colors we have around us in the modern world. But in ancient times, if you came out with a purple robe on, people would be like, whoa, like they couldn't even imagine, uh, you know, it was just like awe-inspiring and had all sorts of glamour to it. So the Tyrians had been doing that and some amount of banking, whatever, and they become quite powerful and they were worshiping Moloch. And then Alexander came along and he just wanted to supposedly pay his respects in one of the temples. And the Tyrian uh, oligarchs rejected that. And so Alexander the Great, being who he was, said, okay, I'm just going to lay siege to your city. And the Tyrians had very carefully constructed uh, this island uh, city-state fortress that had all sorts of underground bulwarks, or I mean, underwater bulwarks that would prevent ships from getting close other than through very nail, narrow lanes that they could control. And then if anyone tried to come in and do a siege, they would just launch catapults or whatever onto it. And Alexander uh, eventually destroyed Tyre in what's roundly considered the greatest siege ever in military history. Uh, it took them, I want to say, a year to do it, something like that. It took them quite a bit of time. I and mean, they built like an earthwork all the way from the shore. They built a land bridge all the way to the shore, uh, from the shore to uh, Tyre and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, it's just incredible. And so he ended up smashing them. And so at that point, uh, they pretty much had their backs broken. And so some of them uh, fled to what would have been the Roman, the like very beginnings of Rome. But most of them went to Carthage. Then in the Punic Wars, uh, which Rome eventually defeated uh, the, the Carthaginians uh, utterly after Hannibal's attempt to go over the Alps with the, with the elephants and all that stuff. And that then was kind of like the end of this uh, group having its own open, we, we worship Moloch, this is who we are, their own, own kind of city-state. So what they did is they went into Rome. And they brought with them all this fantastic wealth they had, what they were able to squirrel away from Alexander um, and bring over from Carthage and Tyre. And they became Roman senatorial families. Like one famous example is the Maximus clan, who later would become the Orsini family, Venetian black nobility. So they stayed in Rome, generated just incredible amounts of wealth being Roman senators. People don't understand how much looting uh was done by Rome and how incredibly fantastically wealthy those Roman senatorial and uh, families who like had emperors and so forth was. But as Rome began to crumble, um, the these same families that hail from Tyre and Carthage and worship Moloch moved over to Venice. And that's where they really start to perfect uh, international banking, debt-based usury, and just all manner of nastiness. And they were bankrupting countries in proto-Europe long before, um, you know, a lot of people who look into central banking, they'll get stuck on the layer of like the Rothschilds or the Warburgs or other Jewish families. And what they don't realize is that when Kazaria was still a Khanate, uh, or not even a Khanate yet, and talking about in the Black Sea, Caspian Sea region, the Venetians were bankrupting uh, like the principalities and dukedoms and they didn't really have clearly defined nation states uh, at all in the, this era of Europe. It was very early stages of Europe, but the Venetians very much kept the dark ages going for as long as possible um, because they were just profiting on, off it like nuts. Well, some of these, um, there, there, there are multiple Italian noble factions, and some of them were in opposition to these uh, Venetians. And at one point, one of these factions got control of the papacy and wanting to harm the Venetians and pull power back into the Vatican because they had control of it and the Venetians were their rivals. They banned usury or lending an interest with the death penalty for Christians. 
Now, mind you, they're not Christians. Of course not. But in those days, if you were like trying to openly worship Moloch, well, they'd kill you, right? Inquisition, all that stuff. So you can't do that. Got to pretend to be Christian on your front face and then in the in the back, you know, in the private sector you're, or in the private area of your life, you are uh, worshipping Moloch. These so Venetians was that, were. Ian, that somebody from one of these families actually managed to get control over the Holy Roman Empire? Or was this after that? Um, I mean, this is, uh, so the Holy Roman Empire, I would actually say is uh, more Luciferian, whereas the papacy is more Malachian as a general rule it really depends on the specifics holy roman empire lasts a long time there are many popes right so as a general rule and of course there's exceptions to it i would say that the papacy in the vatican is more this Molochian group even though in this case i'm talking about you know two groups i mean that's one of the other things that i i find many people don't understand is that even though the Molochian group is very uh like one of their markers is that they have a very hive mind mentality. There's like total subjugation, like Moloch and just all very top down control. Um, the Luciferians are much more individuated, but they believe in cooperation as opposed to coercion, slavery, complete top down control. And they do it for self-interested reasons because they believe it's more generative and that they can then make more money and get more power. And there can be more, uh, upward movement of humanity, which they feel they'll do well in because they're very, they very much believe in meritocracy and competition, but also domination and some other things perhaps we don't like, right? So this, uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire um, doesn't super play into this analysis that I'm doing right now or, or, or thread I'm trying to say. It does. Um, if people are interested in that, I think it's the third episode of the Venetian Black Nobility on my channel, uh, Philip Jimenez goes into that exact subject and we're going to go much deeper on that in a future episode but just for the point i'm trying to make getting back to around 600 ish to 800 ish ad the venetians are just bankrupting everyone left right and center and then a couple few centuries later the pope bans user interest for christians but doesn't say anything about anyone else so at that time, Kazaria had just had his back broken by uh, the proto-Russian empire, what would become sort of the Russian dynastic families um, in Kiev Rus. And so they were then put under something called the Pale of the Settlement, which was kind of akin to a Native American uh, uh, reservation, right? It was just a very, um, it was a very, like, they were cut off economically. They were very oppressed by the Russians. Hence the hatred of Russia that continues to this day. Um, and so more and more of them left and went beyond the pale and went to, uh, which I believe is very similar to the term off the reservation, both I know offensive, but I'm just saying it's a similar kind of thought of like you're going out beyond the edges. So they, the, you start seeing waves of more and more um, Jews who are Khazarian or Ashkenazi Jews, as opposed to the Sephardic and Nazarene and other Jewish groups, you see more and more waves of them coming into Eastern and Southern Europe around this time. And the Venetians said, oh, we'll just use them as frontmen. And this is around the time that suddenly the court Jews start appearing all over the place. And so this is the, the birth and the dawn of anti-Semitism, really. Really, nobody really had a super negative opinion of uh, Jews prior to this starting to happen, maybe a bit because some people like the Vatican might have blamed them uh, for the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ. But more or less, um, Jewish people were not thought of with all the negative stereotypes we have now. And it turns that, the, you know, bigoted negative stereotypes that are built based on some small, tiny, microscopic group of families who are behaving in a very nasty way. And by the way, my son is Jewish. My partner is Jewish. Uh, my ex-wife, who's one of my best friends, is Jewish. Her husband, uh, or soon-to-be husband, is Jewish. I'm surrounded by Jewish people I love. I have many, many Jewish friends and family. And that's one of the reasons I try and do this work, is actually to get people to go deeper than this layer of, you know, that so many get stuck on. With the I'll just child. say there for, for a second, Ian, because it's always the yeah. case when you ever discuss something like this and you talk about it that you're going to get... You're always going to get somebody say something in the comment section. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's important to say that when people talk about um, the current structure of, structures of power, yes, there might be a lot of people from certain 
uh, backgrounds and de denominations. But what you're really talking about here is that actually they were used to mask where the actual power lied. That's that's Absolutely. originally was the intention. Absolutely, 100%. And in fact, I would, uh, you know, I go into this more on my channel, and I know you asked for the historical in the first half and the esoteric in the second half, but in my mind, it's very difficult to uh, split the two because they're not split. The, just the reality is, is that this uh, spiritual battle that's been going on on this planet endlessly since the dawn of time, really, other than during the golden age, this kind of like conflict uh, it is absolutely central to what's happening in the material world. And I think it's critical that people understand that. And a lot of people are going to, a lot of people are going to push back on that or whatever. But one of the big tricks of the Malachians uh, over the past 170 years is this idea of dead materialism. And that really came out of the British Royal Society, which is very much Malachian in the 1850s around there. Prior to that, science and mysticism was completely like it was one and the same. There were alchemists, you know, like look at Newton. Newton was a practicing alchemist and he also uh, gave us right like Newtonian laws of physics. And um, I forget the name. I think it's Leibniz actually was the first to do calculus and uh, he did a better version than the version we use now. But uh, Newton gets credit for calculus. Genius anyway, slice it. The point is, is that Newton was considered like the last of these kind of like uh, mixes of I don't know, magicians or alchemists or whatever, and scientists is among the last, especially in uh, England. Uh, but that mystical outlook in science continued in Germany, interestingly, all the way into World War II. I always, I always point out to people too that if you follow the royal family of Britain, they continued to have caught astrologers. They also had and naturopaths yep. and homeopaths, and they still do today. King Charles still uses a homeopath today. So that knowledge was kept by them, but we were given Absolutely. this. Yeah, we was given this this uh, big farmer model, a soulless, godless world, and no spirit, mm -hmm. uh, and of course evolution too. And, sa and modern day science, which was, again, like you said, it was all the Royal Institutes that gave us that. What you said about dead materialism, that's really the origins of that dead materialism, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's a trick. It's just straight up a trick. And like I had some atheist going off the deep end on me recently and and he said, nobody's born believing in God. And I was like, mm, everyone's born believing in God. Yeah, and he goes, but that means that people in America were born believing in Jesus and people in India were born Hindu. No, you dumb fuck. Pardon my language. That you can cool. that. But no, idiot. People are spiritual when they're born. And then their culture shapes it, which can include daddy was a mean Christian and he spanked me a lot. Now I'm an atheist, which I find is the story of virtually every atheist I've ever met. Some small amount of people were not directly harmed by usually Christian, some Christian figure uh, who are atheists. And I grew up in the Catholic Church. And so it would have been real easy for me to become an atheist, but I couldn't deny what I felt in my body since I was a little kid. I know I believed in God or whatever, some sort of spiritual thing prior to being indoctrinated into Catholicism. And I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, now I'm a dead materialist just because I hate the Vatican. Right. I, I loathe the Vatican. I think it's among the most evil places on the face of the earth. They're structures. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, therefore, I'm just going to say that all uh, that any sort of mystical thing is, you know, doesn't exist. But. The point is, is that so so why does dead materialism matter? Why would this be like a, a, a psychological war uh, technique put on people? Well, J.P. Morgan said millionaires don't use astrology. Billionaires do. And that kind of sums it up, really. They wanted to keep all this technology, the spiritual technology, basically. Right. Which is built into us. Uh, and so when I say technology, I just mean an understanding of how to use the, the gifts we have to interface with the universe. The hermetic principles really uh, delineate this well. And in fact, modern physics has come around. Uh, there's the hermetic principle, the universe is mental in nature. And now mod modern physics is saying the exact same thing. But they're doing everything they can to strip away any kind of mystical connotations to this fact that is 
uh, you know, is unassailable based on all the experiments they do, the infamous double slit, you know, particle wave observer phenomenon, things like this. And the more they learn, the more they see that absolutely the universe is mental in nature. And so the elites wanted to hide this from us, specifically the Malachians. The Luciferians actually have done everything they can to keep that alive and want to spread that. And I believe are one of the main forces of spreading this kind of information now because they believe in the spiritualization of humanity which is a big difference with the malachians but the malachians wanted everyone to think you're you don't have a soul there is no god why why would you want that how is that helpful right like people often talk about flat earth nonsense and then they can never come up with a reason why that would be useful to the elites never once i've met a million billion flat earth adherents and hey check out the globe back there that's pretty much the shape folks they get really angry when you ask them this question because they don't have a good answer. JFK, why'd they do it? Duh. Vietnam War, getting silver out of the system. 9-11, why'd they do it? Security state. Chemtrails, why'd they do it? Alter the weather, right? It's funny how every actual conspiracy has a very crystal clear reason for it. So why would they do this? Why would they tell everyone, you only got one life, you're gonna die, and then it's a blank screen and there is no God? Well, because that leads to two things. It either leads to um, extreme fear around this particular life and not being aware of, I believe in personally, and this isn't something that I'm going to try and say others who believe in, but I believe personally in reincarnation. I just feel it's certainly true. Same thing with karma. And not everyone does, and that's fine. But if you believe there's only one life, you're going to be very protective of this life. YOLO, right? You only live once. <laughs> and... If you're very protective of this life, that means if someone threatens you, especially with death, you're going to fall right into line, right? And Yeshua or Jesus once said that the Most High, not Jehovah or Yahweh, by the way, that's a different God who you tried to usurp the Most High, but I won't digress into that. Yeshua said one of the ways that one of the ways the Most High expresses itself is it's the peace that passes understanding. You feel this tremendous peace regardless of circumstance. Moloch is the exact opposite energy. It's the fear that passes understanding. A fear so intense that a parent would give up their child, which is really the ultimate fear. If Can you I would just be ask you a quick question on that one, Ian. You mentioned about reincarnation in relation to... Uh, us having multiple lives, for example, and how mm -hmm. this can be a positive so that we're not clinging on to this one life as though, oh my God, it's all we've got. Or like you said, on the other hand, it could be a case of, well, we only live once, so let's just have these decadent lifestyles and throw yep. all out the window. Does that, do you see then, therefore, that the reincarnation is a good thing, like it's a positive, or would that actually be more aligned with the Malachian view in terms of you're trapped here because you keep doing the wrong things and you don't transcend this earthly existence, that like you keep getting sent well, back because you're not figuring it out? How do you see it? That's a big debate that happens, you know, especially among, for example, like uh, Christian Gnostics and the discussion of the Demiurge and that sort of thing. Um I think that that's a very negative view, and I think that that's a very disheartening view, and I actually think that that's a Malachian view to poison poison the well and to make the experience negative and, and, and institute fear again, right? So either way, you can have fear get interjected. It's just that when you say all you have is this life, it's a super easy sell to get people fearful or to get people to be nihilistic hedonists, right? who just are like, I can do whatever I want, as long as I don't get caught, right? Like, as long as a, another human being doesn't catch me uh, and punish me, I can do whatever I want, right? So it very much creates a, a it's easy to create a top-down regimented system when that's your underlying philosophy. And that's why they pushed it. With reincarnation, sure, it can look negative. But the way I look at it is the universe operates in terms of polarities, divine masculine, divine feminine, or... Uh, infernal masculine or infernal feminine right but there there's always this there's always a dance between opposites and that's what creates reality you know you can see it in electromagnetism you can have a bar magnet that has both a negative and a positive pole right and the entirety of the universe operates in this way and so if you can understand that you have an immortal soul and you reincarnate over and over again you can then 
hopefully, the hopeful view is that you take a step back and you stop taking things so personally, which is going to reduce uh, reactivity. And it's also going to begin to lead you down a path of going, okay, well, I have to continually strive because I want my next incarnation to be better. Right. I mean, anyone who's ever played any like World of Warcraft of any of these big games, I mean, that's a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about here. Right. It's you, you have this progress that happens over time, even if you die. Right. You sort of reboot and but you keep what you had from before. However, there is a veil of ignorance that happens when you incarnate and therefore you don't remember all your prior lives unless you're able to tap into them or in certain magical traditions, there's things that discuss such as the perfection of the solar body that does allow you to remember. Um, some claim that uh, this these elites who are, are, have been fighting each other uh, for thousands of years, um, that they many of them have perfected their solar bodies and so they recall that they were a pharaoh or whatever, you know, 3,000 plus years ago, and they continue to keep that knowledge, and they're born and are able to tap in that knowledge very easily. But as a general rule, most people come in, and when when we're born, it's just, whoop, it's a blank slate. We don't remember that we have this, but we have all these inborn tendencies. We have all this inborn stuff. And I'll take it a step further and say, we have all this karma, and that that karma creates a structure that tells us what in this incarnation is going to be our soul's journey that we need to learn. And I'm of the opinion, again, this is all just totally my opinion and listener, please, probably much of what I'm saying maybe doesn't resonate with you, and that's fine. Take what does resonate and leave the rest. I'm not trying to tell anyone that I'm some final arbiter or authority on reality. I'm just sharing my view. And so with that in mind, um, you know, I believe that these karmas set us up so that way we can, over the course of time, our soul can learn various lessons and that then we can progress. And I believe that all of us go through a pattern of we start as a speck of dust, right? Just the most basic unit, whatever, an atom, a helium atom, perhaps, right? We start at that level and we're directly like just plugged into this universal mind and part of it. And over time, we differentiate more and more. And eventually, as we evolve, eventually we get to a point to where all of us will be Shiva, who creates and destroys universes with our dance of creation. And then once we've done that long enough, whoop, you go back around and it recycles. And it just goes on endlessly. It's sometimes called Leela or the divine play that basically the universal consciousness decided one day it wanted to differentiate itself put a veil of ignorance on it. And then that process of the prodigal son, you would return back to source. You would return back to this connection with the universal mind and recognizing that. And I actually think reincarnation is incredibly hopeful and incredibly positive. It's even talked about in the Bible because Jesus at one point is asked by one of the disciples, when is, oh gosh, I think it's Isaiah going to come back. My, my apologies if I get the biblical patriarch or major figure wrong, but I believe it's Isaiah that they ask because that was uh, required. That was some sort of required thing prior to uh, the Messiah coming was that Isaiah, uh, Isaiah would return. And he said, oh, yeah, he has. You know him as John the Baptist. They mentioned reincarnation, and that was what managed to slip through the cutting room at the Council of Nicaea. I'm not sure which disciple it was. It might have been uh Paul who asked Jesus uh how will we know when you have returned and he said I'll be the man bearing water a jug of water I think he said which of course astrologically is the age of Aquarius and uh again that that is the astro theology of the bible that most people have no idea exists yes yeah I think so absolutely and um you know uh one of the things that I think will really help people is that we have to learn the universe is not linear in nature. That's been in the West since the time of Zoroaster, this idea of linear progress. But the reality is nothing that you can observe is actually linear if you watch it long enough. There's going to be some sort of cyclical thing to it, really. You know what I mean? I'm talking about things like seasons, the persoxes. Uh, people are babies, then they're children, then they're young adults, then they're mature adults, and they're old adults. There's like a cycle to everything. And that if you think that everything is just linear and moving in one direction, that leaves you ripe for uh, uh, manipulation and control, in my opinion. In a certain sense, it's true, 
right? But rather than looking at it as a circle, circle these cycles, it's better to look at them as a spiral. So in a certain sense, there is a linear progress, but it doesn't happen in a straight line. It happens in a series of spirals, and those spirals can be going upwards or downwards. And in fact, they eventually will do both. And so that then creates um, a situation to where it appears like there's either linearity if you look at it one way or that you can see the cyclical nature if you look at another way. And I think actually both are true, but I find the linear one, um, you know, just because I grew up in the West, it's very obvious to see how that's a very limiting belief and leads you to a lot of erroneous conclusions, right? Because where do we see that? Where is it linear? It really isn't, right? Like, the, Egyptian, the Egyptians rise and fall. The Roman Empire rises and falls. The Aztecs rise and fall. The Mayans rise and fall. So, you know, like, how could we possibly think that? And yet people really do. It's one of the underlying bedrock narratives of Western culture is this idea of we're relentlessly progressing towards something. And again, like that dead materialism, it is, um, it, it's something that the elites very much like because are you standing in the way of progress? Progress is inevitable. There is no alternative, which is their favorite argument. The favorite argument is don't resist us. It's inevitable what's happening. There is no alternative. And they were able to successfully keep the clamps down to where people really believed that and thought there was nothing until fairly recently. And I would say really with the the dawn of the internet is when people started to go, I think there are alternatives actually, because their monopoly of narratives uh, was no longer in play, right? They didn't have the same level of control. And now, of course, they're reacting with censorship and fact checkers and all this kind of nonsense to try and reassert control of the narrative. But it's starting to become increasingly clear that actually, no, a lot of these fundamental assumptions like this forever progress and we're moving in something are, are, are fundamentally flawed, and that actually there's seasons of birth and rebirth and there's cycles of destruction and renewal. And that we're, we're clearly on the cusp of that, uh, of just such a cycle uh, coming to an end, the end of this Kali Yuga. Uh, maybe so we I can still... talk about this a little bit in the, in the second half, but you know, what sure. you're saying there really resonates with the financial system. You know, I talk a lot on the channel about we are literally at the death of the old system. We're at the death of the old um control matrix and that's why they're trying to fast forward us into the next one which they want to be central bank digital currencies smart cities yeah. but i don't think i i think they've messed up uh, i well, don't they, think they've there's, there's just too many people that are aware now they've already woken up too many people and like you said the monopoly on information was lost with the internet and i think they're very desperate right now and that's why i think we've got a lot of potential here a lot of potential oh, for a change that will finally get rid of these people but yeah, uh, it's not a guarantee. It's just, it's an opportunity. People have to assume. Yeah, yeah, I uh, agree responsibility. with responsibility. Yes, yes, I think it's critical that people take their own responsibility, like in their personal interactions, but also in the macro sense of that we can't just sit back and be observers. We need to be active participants in creating the reality we want. Um, yeah, so like that dead materialist idea is very much, in my opinion, Malachian because. It leads inevitably to fear of death, which makes it easier to control, or a slip into nihilistic hedonism, which makes you easier to control, right? They both just magically lead straight to uh, the top-down controllers having greater control. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people who are atheists, they sincerely believe that believing in dead materialism is going to be more positive for humanity, and that's why they do it. And I, and I actually believe them. I do feel that there's an emotional component underneath and that I have pretty much never met an atheist who wasn't harmed by a Christian. Pretty much never. Like if you, if you really drill down and a lot of them won't admit it, but if you ever like get to know an atheist, ask them what Christian hurt them. And they'll be like, Oh, my dad used to beat me or, you know, this blah, blah, blah. My, my mother was so harsh and I couldn't date anyone. And or there's I was always gay. a lot of anger, always a lot of anger with atheists. 100%, 100%. And again, like, if you're an atheist viewer, like, I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm trying to say that you were very likely hurt by someone. That is not okay. That's not acceptable. And, you know, that is a, a terrible thing. And you have a right to reject that. But 
that hurt and pain you suffered is not representative of spirituality. It's perhaps representative of religion. I can sometimes get on board with this idea of the atheist where they're like, religion causes all these problems. The flip side is religion and culture are almost, they're so inextricably interlinked until basically World War I that it's almost impossible to ignore that, uh, you know, religion language, culture, they're all very intermixed everywhere uh, in the world. And the problem with religion is that it tends to get hijacked like any structure by socio-psychopaths who very often, whether they outwardly worship Moloch or not, that's what they resonate with, right? A lot of times when I talk about the Luciferians and Molochians, people will come away, of it, come away from it thinking that everyone who's that way automatically worships Moloch, and that's not true. Probably a very small minority do, you know, among the people who are in their structure. I mean, you could argue that both of us are within a Malachian structure because right now the Malachians rule the planet. And clearly we reject that. Right. And we don't worship it. So that that continues all the way up to the administrative. And it's really not until you get to that tippy top of control to where you get to that occult aristocracy that you start finding people who do actively worship Moloch or Lucifer and actively interact with those beings. Um, for most people, it's more like a, a mental state, right? And there's certain hallmarks of it. And what I'm, what I would say to any atheist listeners is, I know your heart is in the right place. Truly, I believe that. I know more than likely someone has harmed you. But what I'm telling you is, you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and it will make you easier to control. I finally met this atheist who went off on me yesterday. Is the first one I've met that didn't take the vax. Every every other atheist I know or met, 100% of them, until this guy, and he might have been lying too because he was just a jerk. Um, uh, every single one I know has uh, took the vax. And of course you would, because you're going to be desperate. Cycle, to they were also the most fearful people that I knew as well at the time. Absolutely. Because they had Absolutely. nothing else to hang on to. It was like, this is all there is. Oh, my God. I've only got one life. It was that exact attitude you spoke about before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of how it, it lends you uh, or drives you towards very dangerous situations because it's hard not to. And I know, I mean, I can't imagine waking up every day in this world as an atheist. I just can't even imagine it. Like I would have certainly offed myself if I didn't have this uh, connection to spirit that I have. I just couldn't imagine it because things look really bleak, especially if you're going through Malachian controlled media channels or even conspiracy theory groups, truthers. Um, you know, that's why one of the other things I rail against all the time is the black pill. Folks, if you're going out there and saying, oh, it's inevitable, we're going to, oh, the great three, so we're all going to be brain chip, we're all going to eat the bugs, there's nothing we can do, and you repeat their motto of you will own nothing and be happy, or you will eat the bugs, whenever you repeat those, even tongue-in-cheek, you're empowering that stuff. Stop it. Say, if you're going to point out what Davos is doing, at the end of the day, Davos will fail. Speak that into existence, because otherwise, you're blackpilling people. And we're in the middle of fifth generation warfare. That is to say psychological warfare operations that are uh, being done by governments and think tanks and military and intelligence agencies. And as the Malachians have been forced into the light, they have switched gears from hiding everything they do to saying everything we do is inevitable. Everything we do is inevitable. And pushing that on every turn. Well, why would you do that? Well, it's classic psychological warfare. Demoralize the enemy. In this case, we're the enemy of these horrible, nasty types, and they want to demoralize us. They want us to take a knee, as a friend of mine puts it. And that's the one way we lose. It's just one big trick. It's just one big trick. I say all the time to people, nothing changed between 2019 and 2020 and 2021 besides your mind you encased yourself in a prison it was a trick you could have gone outside you could have carried on with your life but if they get enough people to believe that they're living in this cage then all of a sudden it's reality but nothing's changed but the problem we've got now is they are creating i i truly believe the bible got it 100 percent correct when they said god creates with the word and i think man creates with the word too 
And I think they're putting their visions in our heads and we're just acting them out en masse. Everyone's acting out their vision. And I truly believe if we gave people another vision and we held that in our minds for a day, tomorrow the world's a different place. So I always tell people, Absolutely. don't believe their vision. Just change it in your head and say that's not going to happen. Yeah. And I think we've reached a point at this point, many of us, um, to where, first of all, I don't think you're going to wake anybody else up. You know your you know your sister that you've been trying to get this to, you know your brother, your brother-in-law, your mom, your dad, your kid, maybe hopefully not your kid. That would be I can't imagine how heartbreaking that would be. But your family member, your friend who you just haven't been able to convince, you know, your blue-haired friend and you used to be liberal and like you you were friends for many many years but now they just like they don't see it. They're not going to see it. The only way these people are going to wake up, more than likely they won't at this point. They never will. They're going to die asleep, possibly very soon. Um, but the only way they're going to wake up at this point is an intense personal tragedy that hits them so hard it shakes them out of this trance that they're in. And you're not going to do that. So don't bother. Instead, stop looking at a single way that the WF wants you and all that stuff. The details of their plan don't matter. You get it. Most of us get it. What are we going to do now to put a different system into place? How are we going to put a different system into place? The fact of the matter is, is that in my opinion, unless people mass give up, there's no way that Davos is actually going to win. And the thing is, is that we have very powerful allies in this existential threat we're facing. And when you face an existential threat, you can't really sit there and do purity tests on your allies. I saw this woman who was, I think she was an atheist, who was super duper into um, pointing out everything that Davos was up to. And she was invited to speak at this conference and she rejected it because she's a liberal because they had images of the founding fathers in the pamphlets and information for this thing that she was going to do. And she's like, I can't work with them. You're going to die then. And there's a lot of people in the truth community who want uh, to have lockstep agreement. And I'm like, that's exact. you know, like you are mirroring what the Malachians want. They want lockstep agreement. I mean, in fact, there was even a document about the pandemic called the lockstep document, uh, uh, or well, the lockstep scenario within a much longer document by the, uh, Rockefellers that uh, predicted exactly the 2020 event, you know, because they planned it. Um, and so uh, you're never going to meet you're never going to meet someone who agrees with you 100. percent I don't think. Maybe if you have an identical twin, perhaps, and that's probably the only example. Um, and I actually don't want people to agree with me 100. percent Why? Because if people agree with me 100, percent I'm just going to start drinking my own Kool Aid and think that. I'm certain, and as Robert Anton Wilson said, uh, certainty is the death of reason. The minute that you're locked into a viewpoint or a way of thinking or whatever, and you won't even entertain an alternate point of view, like that's when you're no longer uh, operating at a rational level. You're no longer being a, a, a pyrrhic skeptic. You're no longer like wanting to find truth. You're now high on your own supply of ego. And so I don't even want that kind of echo chamber. I do have my pet peeves, right? Like flat earth drives me nuts, mostly because that's a Tavistock psychological operation to discredit the truth movement. But the fact of the matter is there's, there's gonna, you're gonna discover, and this was actually one of the most shocking things was when I realized that just because someone's in the truth movement doesn't mean they're not a gigantic jerk because I run into them all the time. I've met some really repellent people who see everything I see and the thing is, as I tell you what, I will work with that person. I might not want to talk with them on Facebook, but if, if they were nearby and we were facing down whatever kind of situation, I'd work with them. And likewise, we have very powerful allies. I want to be clear. I will never worship Lucifer. I uh, am not in alignment with that frequency. Um, there is some overlap between my values and the luciferians uh because the luciferians do believe it or not have some overlap values with the most high but the luciferians also have overlap values with the malachians and i'll give you um uh, a image that you can put up here to kind of uh which is a, a three a three circle venn diagram that kind of 
explains this delineation I'm talking about. Um, you could put it up for the visual for, for folks to see, but these Luciferians are, are often very, very powerful. Let me give you uh, some examples of some, some people that I believe are Luciferian. First, let me give you some Malachians. They're pretty obvious. One of the things you can tell about Malachians is they always have that feeling of someone stuffed a monster into a suit or perhaps a pale blue Cosby sweater, Bill Gates, right? Look at Bill Gates. Look at Augustin Karstens, the head of the Bank of International Settlements. Look at Klaus Schwab. These guys are very clearly monsters stuffed into something to try and hide how monstrous they are, but it really doesn't, right? It just, they, they, they're just so nasty and awful vibration that it's just, um, you, you just know it right away if you have any kind of discernment and sensitivity whatsoever. Luciferians are very often gentlemen. They have a very genteel attitude, a very sophisticated intellect. Um, I, they're, they're basically spiritual libertarians is one way I'd describe them, who believe in meritocracy competition, but they're very ruthless. They're like, listen, the top dog, the apex predator, that's who wins, and that's me, and I'm going to go to the top. But I don't fear competition because it makes me stronger and better because I'll beat you. You come at me, I'm going to work harder than you, and I'm going to win. And so they don't mind having a society in which there's motion because they're convinced they're the best. And if they're not the best, they're just going to work harder. Would this come from like a Nietzschean kind of philosophy? It's about a, what? The, a, Nietzsche, a Nietzschean, like Nietzsche, the Superman trying to dominate. Yeah. Uh, I, hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought of that somebody, before. That's somebody, really interesting. Yeah, that Nietzschean, thus spoke Zarathustra kind of stuff. Yeah, the Ubermensch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is. It, it, wow. wow I, I never really thought about that before. That's a great. Thank you for that, Michael. That's a great example of uh, philosophy. We have a viewpoint. Right. Because Nietzsche was seen. It seemed I don't know. Nietzsche is very misunderstood. And he was a super genius. And maybe just I, I haven't understand him. I certainly haven't read all his works. You know, um, he definitely didn't like religion. I can say that. Right. Antichrist, you know. Um, but uh, I agree with you. Yeah. That Ubermensch mentality is very much I would say social Darwinism. I mean, there is something appealing to that. There is, and there is something real about it, too. And that's why that's why we still talk about it, because there is a truth there about, you know, in our lives, we have to be our own best friend and we have to sometimes you know to, to become the best you can be you have to nurture that part of yourself that is competitive that does have to exist but I guess there's an extreme element to it too that becomes destructive I think it's just about containing it like the shadow you know containing your shadow yeah and I mean like and that's kind of where we're at as a species is is we're moving into this um what will be a, a, a Luciferian age, the bronze and, and silver yugas uh, are ruled by Lucifer. This is what, and again, I want to be transparent. A lot of times when I talk about things like Tyre and Moloch, and like I can actually prove that the Venetians worship Moloch, like I can prove it. And it's a, it's a fact-based thing. There might be reason speculation attached to it, but it's predicated on fact. But what I'm about to say is, it's direct gnosis from the angels. People can take it or leave it. But I've been told that during the Iron Ages of Kali Yuga, Moloch rules. During the Bronze and Silver Age, Lucifer rules. And during the Golden Ages of the Sat Yuga, the Most High, whose name has been lost, this is the lost name of God the Jews were looking for, or the Master Mason's word that was lost when Hiram Abiff was killed by his three apprentices and Masonic lore. There's, there's many other... Um, there's many other variations of this myth around the world of like some benevolent deity who everyone worshiped during the golden age, whose name has been lost. Um, so that most high rules during like the golden age It's the last one, which we just have myth left over from it. It would be Atlantis. Right. Um, and, and that was a, a very high vibrational civilization. But then, you know, the, what has come down to us is that they fell because their consciousness fell. And they started using this extreme high level of like spiritual technology to dominate others. And that's when that Luciferian impulse comes in. Right. And then as they go further and further down, then eventually like it's not even about aggression and competition and war, and, you know, and hierarchy, which was unheard of in the golden age. It's now about slavery. It's now about parasitism. It's now about top down control, the Malachian energy, which is that kind of like, 
lowest vibration of consciousness. But we're about to break out of that and move into this Luciferian age. And what does that mean? I, I think that's a great place to maybe just take a pause, uh, and maybe nip and get a drink and then come back and maybe you can tell us more about what that does mean for us. Because it sounds to me like we're entering something that's more hopeful than where we've been and probably absolutely. more aspirational than most people are actually believing is possible right now. Yeah, and again, this doesn't mean that Lucifer is good. I just want to say that uh, Lucifer is still a false light that leads people away. And I would just say real quick, the three defining characteristics, super truncated and simplified, is the Malachian's core feeling is self-hatred and desire of destruction because of that, to destroy themselves and everything around them, right? The Luciferian impulse is kind of narcissism, misdirected self-improvement, self-love, like you talked about with uh, uh, the Nietzsche example. And then the most high is self-love to where you love yourself so deeply and you have the realization that you, Michael, are me and I am you and everything behind you. We're all one with everything around us. We all exist within God. And when you have that understanding and you have true self-love, you're going to automatically from those three mentalities, total self-hatred, narcissism, or true self-love, many, many behaviors are going to spring from those fundamental things. And so, um, yeah, I mean, again, I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking, oh, Ian's a Luciferian, he loves Lucifer, blah, blah. No, 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 no. I'm just saying that according to natural law, that being or that mentality or that vibration is going to be the dominant vibration of the mentality of humans as opposed to this dominator slavery parasitism harm of children dead materialist view that we've all lived under for the past six thousand years here in the kali yugas so that's it for part one of my episode with Ian Ferguson from White Lotus of Light. Now, if you enjoyed that, please go check out Ian's YouTube channel. Ian's got a fantastic channel over there where he's doing some awesome content all about the things that he spoke about in tonight's interview. Now, if you'd like to listen to part two of my interview with Ian, please check out my website, parallelmike.com. Now, over there, I'm going to be putting out exclusive content, which is beyond the YouTube channel. I'm going to have my own separate podcast from now on. And that podcast will be available to everyone. You can download it via the podcast app. However, on there, I'm going to be delivering one hour episodes, 45 minutes to one hour for free. And the second hour where we get into more specifics and we go into things more in depth than we did in the first hour, we'll be going into different areas that we maybe didn't cover. That will be available to members only. So you'll have to become a member of my website to receive the full episodes. You'll also be able to access the Parallel Systems community where we are building our Parallel Systems. Now, the reason that I've done this is because quite simply, YouTube have been censoring the conversation over here ever since the beginning. Another reason that I wanted to do a standalone podcast is because there's many conversations that probably don't quite fit the brief of my YouTube channel. For example, this discussion today with Ian may not be the content that people that come here originally for just simply financial information or finding out about getting prepared for financial collapse are looking to hear. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Well, this separate podcast will be a place for those more in-depth discussions where we're talking about philosophy, theology, spirituality, and of course the financial system too. However, I'll be able to take a much deeper dive on certain topics such as the history of central banking over there on my podcast. So for people that want to explore new knowledge, the first hour will always be for free. It will be that second hour that you can become a member for and then you can listen to the full episodes. Now, the reason I have the second hour as a members only is because quite simply, it costs an awful lot in terms of time, energy, and money to produce these shows. And this is something that I love to do, but I also need support from people like you. So if you value this content and if you would like to hear more, I would love to have you over there as a member. It would be fantastic because this is how we start to push back against the censorship. This is how we start to build a parallel system. It begins by supporting one another, whether that's me or another content creator that you value. I urge you, support that content. Do not give your money to Amazon, Netflix, the government in the form of taxes, and then not support the content creators that are pushing back against the tyranny too, because that unfortunately will be the fast track for us all ending up in a censored world where only one voice gets heard. So I'm going to leave it there for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, if you'd like to join us for part two, head over to the Patreon or head over to my website, parallelmike.com, and I will see you in the next one.
If you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death, you can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.